You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I feel like who art ed? We tried to spice it. Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, weekly art history for all ages. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and today we're looking at Frank Gehry, one of the most prominent and influential contemporary architects. Gehry was born February 28, 1929, in Toronto, Canada. His name at birth was Frank Goldberg. Now, as a kid, he would build play cities using scrap wood he found around his grandfather's hardware store. He would later become famous for his house that was designed using ready-made industrial materials like corrugated steel, chain-link fencing, and plywood. A somewhat traditional cottage peeks out from this Frankenstein edition of steel, glass, and plywood. He said his embrace of the utilitarian, everyday materials was inspired in part by the Saturday afternoons he spent at his grandfather's store. Gary says that he would draw with his father, but he credits his mother, actually, with introducing him to the world of art. Gary says his father thought that he was a dreamer who would never amount to anything, but his mother saw potential and pushed him when he was hesitant to do things. Now, the unique home that I described earlier would be the piece that launched him to fame. Of course, it had to create some mixed feelings as busloads of people come to look at his design— I mean, on one level, it seems flattering, but at the same time, it had to be annoying because it wasn't just a house he designed. It was his house. And let's face it, nobody likes visitors dropping by to see how you live. Some say it's one of the earliest examples of deconstructivism in architecture. Of course, that would come later. Back to Gary's life story. Frank Gary's parents moved to the U.S. when he was a kid. At age 17, Gary came to live in Los Angeles. He took an extension course at the University of Southern California under Glenn Lukens. As Gary tells it, Lukens, the great ceramics artist, pulled him aside and told him to give it up. He wasn't right for sculpting and that maybe he should try out architecture. Apparently, Lukens then brought Gary to see his home being built and Gary was inspired. Before that, he saw architecture as kind of boring and plain, but as he watched the site being built and the beams going into place, he saw the beauty of construction and was inspired to take up the profession. He studied architecture at USC, earning his degree in 1954, and then for two years he worked different jobs, including serving in the U.S. Army. In 1956, he went to Harvard, where he studied city planning. Now, obviously, with Harvard on your degree, doors were open to him. He spent a few years working in different prominent architectural firms before opening his own in 1967. Over the years, his family business has grown. 
But it truly is still a family business, as his wife does the books, and Frank Gehry collaborates with his sons in designing new projects. While he's designed numerous iconic structures, including the Disney Theater in L.A. and my local favorite, the Pritzker Pavilion in Chicago's Millennium Park, one of his best-known works is the Guggenheim Museum building in Bilbao, Spain. Traditionally, museums across Europe and North America were, well, traditional. Architects typically designed them in some form of neoclassical style with columns and grand facades that were not only big and imposing in the sense that they towered over visitors approaching the building, they were hearkening back to the style of ancient Greece and Rome. Throughout history, Western societies have revered the ancient Greek and Roman philosophers, writers, and artists. We've seen a common thread from the ancients to the Renaissance, the neoclassical movement of the 18th and 19th centuries up through today. By adopting the architectural style of ancient Greece and Rome, museum architects are suggesting that the museum is firmly rooted in history and tradition. It suggests the institution will stand the test of time. It's both ancient and enduring. One of the first major deviations from that classical museum styling came when Frank Lloyd Wright designed the Guggenheim Museum. It took 15 years to design and build, but Wright's unique spiraling building was completed in 1959. The main gallery is six stories with a ramp winding around the perimeter of the rounded building. There's a skylight in the center. It's a stark contrast from the traditional museum compartmentalized with collections distinctly separated in their own rooms. The Guggenheim is open, inviting patrons to take a journey walking around to view the entire collection. Of course, it has been expanded over the years, and there's more to explore than the main collection, with additional galleries in the annex and a learning center in the basement. But the main point is that Frank Lloyd Wright broke with tradition and created spiraling ramps to allow visitors to experience the art and the museum in a way that was fresh and new. It was open with an elegant simplicity, distinctly modern. In the 1980s, the museum's director, Thomas Krenz, began looking for opportunities to expand the museum's reach. He and his staff began developing plans for satellite branches of the museum to be opened in other countries. And in 1997, one of these branches opened in Bilbao, Spain. The museum was designed by Frank Gehry. Obviously, that's why we're talking about it on the Frank Gehry episode. It's a testament to his unique vision of architecture. While Wright's Guggenheim Museum is known for following modern architectural principles with that elegant simplicity, Gary's work looks needlessly complicated. It's a jumble of these curvilinear forms. I think one of the most interesting aspects is the contrast between the old established Spanish buildings in the narrow street corridor and the shining sculptural titanium form of the museum. Approaching the building, so unlike everything else in the city, one thing is certain. 
the museum patron will be transported to see and experience something new and different upon entering the space. Gary has said that he selected the material based on the climate in Bilbao, Spain. In rainy weather, he says the titanium takes on a golden hue, and it is just breathtaking. Now, this is no accident. In Gary's studio, he has a massive collection of models showing each iteration of each of his designs. He thinks through every detail and rethinks, revising until everything is just right. The architect is part sculptor, but also part installation artist. To achieve his desired outcome, he thinks not only about the form of the structure, but how it will interact with its surroundings. His famous Disney concert hall in L.A. is stainless steel shimmering in the California sun, but he says steel felt dull in the overcast conditions typically seen in Bilbao. He said he just happened to have a piece of titanium lying around, as apparently one does, and he put it out on a post to see how it would fare on a rainy day. That's how he came to discover the perfect material for his acclaimed museum. Now, on some level, I suppose you might say it is a bit of happenstance and a fortuitous accident that he just happened to have that titanium lying around to be able to stick it up on a post and see how it looks. But also, luck and good fortune tend to favor those who are prepared. While the parody version of him in The Simpsons depicts Gary as taking inspiration from crumpled garbage, and the buildings are often described as playful, they're actually meticulously crafted. Gary uses engineering software modified from airplane manufacturers in order to determine precise specifications for every curve on the form. As a result of his meticulous planning and precise measurements, Gary says that his buildings actually tend to come in at a relatively low cost. He said that Bilbao cost around $300 per square foot, which is significantly lower than the average museum. And while I always applaud people who come in at or under budget and are responsible in all aspects of their design, ultimately, I don't think that precision is what Gary's work is all about. The modernists said form follows function. They focused on how people will use a space. Gary focuses on how people will react to the space. His goal is to inspire, to make them feel. He talks about the challenge of creating feeling with inert materials. He says that movement is what brings out that feeling. And that's why we see this repetition of angles and curving forms all around. It's to create that sense of movement and action to stir something up in the people approaching and going through the building. Now with Bilbao, rather than simply designing a building to house the collection of some of the world's most beautiful and inspiring art, Gary made the building itself a work of art that inspires awe and wonder. 
This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.